Welcome to The Plastosphere, the podcast on plastic, people, and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. In this podcast, I invite you to accompany me while I explore our complex entanglement with plastics and how we can untangle it. I will bring you the insights of scientists, activists, and innovators from the global community working to understand and solve issues of plastic pollution. One worry for many people is microplastic. Scientists have found it in the stomachs of all kinds of animals, even the ones we eat, like mussels. Salt can also contain plastic when it's harvested near the sea. Some of these tiny pieces come from bigger chunks of trash that float in the oceans, which break up over time. Others enter the environment from our bathrooms, when people flush shower gels, peelings or makeup containing plastics down the drain. And washing machines can leak thousands of microfibers from synthetic pants and shirts into the water. Even cars leave microplastic behind when they race down the streets and their tires produce a fine dust. But when plastic breaks up, it doesn't just stop with microplastic. There are even smaller bits called nanoplastics. In this episode, you'll get to meet a researcher who's been studying plastic at this extremely fine level. These nanoplastics could have fundamental effects on our environment and our bodies, but for a long time scientists weren't able to detect these very small pieces in the environment, until a team of French researchers came along and found them in the open ocean. The lead author of the study is chemist Alexandra Terhal, who works at the Paul Sabatier University in Toulouse. Bonjour. Bonjour, Alexandra. Ça va? Ça va? <laughs> On va de de I met her at a science conference there recently, and she invited me over to her lab to tell me more about micro and nanoplastic. So the, the samples are kept uh, in a refrigerator. And, and so here, there is some, a little bit of ice, but... Uh, I will show you the, the plastic. We call them macro debris. They are about 10, 20 centimeters big. And you can identify the origin of the, of the object. And many, many of them were um, packaging objects, container, jars, and so on. For example, this green piece of plastic was a piece of coffee in America. Originally, it's a red bright. And now with the sun, uh, the color uh, passed away, and it is uh, just uh, pink. Pinkish uh, green, yeah. Did yes. something grow on it? Oh, yes. We are studying those microorganisms and trying to um, understand what kind of life is developing on the plastic. And in fact, it is very different from the life that uh, lives in the sea. And as a chemist, I wanted to understand if there are interactions between the plastic and the organisms. If the kind of plastic is going to modify and change the composition of the biofilm. And we saw that uh, indeed there were some differences, but we are not really able to understand why uh, for the moment. Plastic is a new environment in the open ocean, and organisms are making it their home. Six years ago, Miriam Goldstein, a 
graduate student of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, found that sea skaters, little insects that live in the marine environment, had started to lay their eggs on the plastic in the subtropical gyre of the North Pacific, and that they were now increasing in numbers. Soon after, Linda Emeril Zettler from the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole discovered peculiar ecosystems on small pieces of plastics from the North Atlantic. She and her two collaborators found that a vibrant community of microbes was settling on the trash. Some were potential pathogens, while others seemed to be munching away on the plastic. They found that the communities differed a lot depending on geography. Apparently, they can also differ depending on the kind of plastic. And that's what Alexandra Terhal is interested in. How many kinds of plastics are there so, in your lab? I mean, do you find... Oh, we usually say that there are six um, types of plastic uh, sold in the world. Polyethylene, high and low density, polystyrene, polyethylene terephthalate, polyvylene chloride, Polypropylene also? Polypropylene? These are just the most commonly used of the thousands of kinds of plastics that are out there. They come in small pellets, and because they can be remelted, they are called thermoplastics. The Canadian Plastics Association compares them to an ice cube, which you can melt and then cool again. Asking for a precise number of plastic types would be like asking for how many types of bread there are, they write. Each product needs different qualities. So some plastics, for example, are made to keep the air out of food, others to hold heavy weights like a bag, and yet others may even stop a bullet. But the, the one that uh, you see in the open ocean, afloat, are the ones that are uh, less dense than the seawater. It is polyethylene, polypropylene, and expanded polystyrene. But for... Um, For some kind of reason, most of the microplastics in the open ocean are made of polyethylene. So there is uh, much less polypropylene and polystyrene uh, than uh, expected. I think it's because they are breaking down uh, faster than polyethylene. How could our listeners um, identify these kinds of plastics that you just um, described? There's these numbers, right? These yes. recycling. Oh, you're going to ask me the, the numbers. I cannot... Uh, <laughs> I cannot tell you. You know what? Um, the soda bottles are made of um, polyethylene terephthalate, of PET, and then um, a lot of uh, jar containers for shampoo or fruit juice sometimes or um, coffee boxes or chocolate boxes uh, are made of uh, polyethylene. And then uh, if the content is uh, fat, like butter and things like that, it's going to be polypropylene. So with a little bit of experience, you understand that there are some specific use for some specific uh, plastic. And then uh, the polystyrene is, uh, expanded polystyrene is a lot used for, um, for food, for meat or things like that. And when you go uh, eating on the street, uh, most of the time uh, the food is uh, served in polystyrene foams. The stuff that Alexandra Terhal has stored in her freezer was collected during an expedition called Le Septième Continent, which translates to Seventh Continent. It refers to the idea that the trash in the oceans is accumulating large circular currents that exist in all seas, the big gyres. 
Some years ago, the researchers went out to a region in the North Atlantic called the Sargasso Sea to collect samples. It's a large area in the middle of the ocean and one of the most well-researched places in terms of ocean plastics. This is the first place where plastic pieces were found far from land by two scientists called Carpenter and Smith in 1972. Of course, it's not really another continent. It's bits and pieces of trash floating around, some larger, some smaller. These are the uh, easy ones. You can see them with the eye and you can hold them in your hands. And then uh, it's easy to make uh, measurements on them. And uh, they help us to understand how the plastic is transformed by UV light, mostly. And then uh, how it is modified by all those uh, exterior stress. And then when we are going to track down the small ones, this is going to give us some hints of the structure of uh, those small ones because they are changed from the initial plastic. So I put them back um, in the fridge. In the fridge. Um, you got a lot in there. Oh, yes, and there I've got other fridge in the basement. And so what do you have in there? Frozen fish? Yes. Plastics? What else? What other surprises? Yes, few things like that. As ocean plastic sweats in the sun and gets beaten by waves, it gets smaller and smaller. The salty water nags on the material, and animals bite their teeth into it until it becomes microplastics, defined as plastic smaller than 5 millimeters in size. But the big oceanic gyres are not the only places where microplastics are forming. So, um, going, in the, going into the uh, North Atlantic was uh, really important because it's an emblematic place where uh, plastic is gathering. But now we realize that uh, every place in, on Earth is polluted. Going into the middle of the ocean was uh, very uh, important for me as a chemist because um, there is not so much organic matter in the open ocean. There is no sand or silt um, floating uh, in the water. And so when I took my first sample, it was um, a good start, a good first easy start uh, because there were not interaction with too many organic matter. But uh, we know now that uh, the rivers are the main uh, entrance of the plastic in the ocean. And in river, it's uh, much more complicated because there are leaves, dead leaves, and uh, pieces of branch, and so many things. So let me show you a sample. It was last week, so it it's not very nice to see. It looks very. Um, yeah, it looks like mud almost. Yes. Let me get something for you to show you uh, what we are doing uh, as a preparation. At the beginning, we've got a huge, big piece of um, mud, uh, and at the end, we've got this uh, small filter, and you can see a few particles on top of it. I am going to open that very quickly because I don't want any contamination. I hardly see anything. So these are the micrometric particles. So these are the tiny pieces of plastic that are, are in the river. I was looking at a small Petri dish with a little pad on it, covered by a sort of substance. But I couldn't make out individual pieces. 
That is microplastics. That's yes. very small very microplastic. Very small plastic. It's How? micrometric. This is the size of the diameter of a hair. And, and then uh, how are we going to um, analyze that? We are going to use a, a technique combining uh, microscopy and spectroscopy. So microscopy will uh, give us the size and the shape of the particle, and the spectroscopy will give us the nature of the particle. And we want to be sure that um, if we are counting the pollution in the river, we are not counting uh, uh, sand or organic matter. So by having an analysis of the matter, we make sure that uh, every particle we count are made of plastic and what kind of plastic it is. Can I have a look at this Petri dish? Or is it yes. dangerous if I uh, open if, like, if you Do open I contaminate it? it? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is another one. Oh, on this one, I can see them better. They're like yes. tiny, tiny little black, uh, not even dots. They're, yes. It's like a powder almost. Mm. Yes. So these plastic uh, on those filters are made of tiny, tiny particles of uh, polyethylene, polypropylene, PVC, PET, polystyrene. And um, there might be some um, other um, type of plastic like um, paint particles or um, uh, dust um, from tires, but those are really difficult to analyze and uh, I have still to keep working to be sure uh, how to um, detect them. So this is really the tiny, tiny microplastic that you found in yes. River Garonne, the uh, river that uh, passes uh, through Toulouse. There are many challenges researchers face when looking at plastic pollution. In the ocean, they get relatively clean samples, but it's a long and expensive journey. It's easier to get to the rivers, but there, all the samples are completely covered in other stuff that travels with the stream. It takes them up to 20 steps to clean it. And even then, some organic matter stays in there, so it's much harder to analyze. For that, they need expensive laboratory equipment that can tell them whether the tiny pieces they are looking at are actually plastic and what kind. So what's next um, once you analyzed it? So now I want to understand uh, what's going on uh, over a year, if there are um, a period in the year where there are more plastic than other, uh, maybe related to uh, the rains events or something like that. And then I have a collaboration with a biologist uh, specialized in ecology, and uh, we are going to study the trophic transfer of the plastic. We are going to look in the macroinvertebrae up to the top predators, uh, the fishes in the river, and we are going to look at all trophic level and see if there is a transfer of, of plastic in the, in the food web in the river. And how are you going to do that? We're going to collect uh, those uh, animals, and we are going to uh, analyze their gastrointestinal uh, system. What they have in their stomachs yes. and their... And their mm. Intestines? Yes, we are going to do that. This is important. If microplastics are eaten by small animals and those animals are eaten by bigger ones, the food web of the rivers could be infiltrated. The animals who are higher up the food chain would consume the tiny plastic pieces with their food. And together with the plastic, they could consume harmful additives and substances that act like hormones. 
that could have big effects on ecosystems and is one of the reasons microplastics are so worrisome. So are these the smallest ones you find? No. <laughs> so those are the, the micro and uh, we've been tracking uh, the nano that are a thousand times smaller than those ones. I guess you can't show me those. No, I cannot show you those. So um, in 2016, we collected some microplastic from the open ocean and we took them in the lab and we could demonstrate that uh, from micro, nano are forming. From microplastic, nano particles of plastic are forming. Uh, after uh, erosion and stress and uh, things like that. So that was the first step. And then uh, last year, in 2017, we published a paper and that was the first demonstration that uh, nanoplastic were present uh, in the natural habitat. So it was also water collected from the North Atlantic gyre. We collected uh, seawater we concentrated this seawater more than a thousand times and then we could detect um, particles and have an idea of their size. We knew that they were nanometric in the nanometric range. That's not enough to, um, to assign them as plastic and then we add the chemical fingerprint of those uh, nanometric objects and they were proven to be uh, in plastic. It was a mass spectrometry uh, analysis. Because nanoplastics are so small, the scientists need high-tech methods like these to understand what chemical compounds they are dealing with and to confirm that what they have found actually contains plastic. To show me what nanoplastics look like, Alexandra Terhal took me from the lab to her office and showed me a picture pinned to a wall. Um, the microplastic, the nanoplastic we we produced under natural condition uh, in the lab is on this poster. Yes, so this is the microscopic uh, electronic transmission uh, image. Let me show you. Uh, you see those small um, dots. They've got, we've got some small ones and bigger ones in the nanometric range, and they've got uh, different kind of shapes, and some are packed together. So you say the nanometric range. How yes. small are they? Can you compare it to anything it's in nature? Viruses. A nanoplastic is just big like a virus. If you'd like to take a look at this picture with the nanoplastics, you can find it in the episode transcript on the podcast website. These super tiny particles might be different from the initial plastic material. So are these still polymers? You know what? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, a polymer, it's a long chain. Uh, it's a very long molecule of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen. And um, upon weathering and upon um, UV light from the sun, this might be broken down into smaller and smaller pieces. So I'm wondering um, if the polymer backbone in those nanoplastic is long as the one in the original plastic, or if it is shorter, is it uh, oligomers? Uh, it is certainly uh, modified from the original plastic. 
And, and what would that mean? What would the implication be in either case if there are still polymer so, chains or not so the anymore? The implication is uh, in, important, I think, from a biological point of view. The interaction of a, a very long molecule or a shorter one with organisms or cells or um, microorganisms is not the same. So the implications are important. The thing is, now we are doing um, ecotoxicological evaluation with um, standards. And we are demonstrating here that uh, the polymer is modified. So the future uh, evaluation must consider these uh, changes. But it's, it is challenging. It is challenging to... Uh, collect uh, in the natural habitat those nanoplastics or to recreate them under uh, laboratory condition. But we are, we are working on, on that uh, and it is challenging. So it will take uh, a few years before we can uh, present some uh, results. It's really crucial to assess the potential toxicity of these particles to our ecosystems. If there are impacts, this might also have consequences for our own health. And do we have an idea already of how much um, nanoplastics is out there in the ocean? No, so we, we were able to detect them by mass spectrometry. And um, for the moment, we are not uh, already um, able to quantitate them. So we don't know uh, how much there is. And if you're looking at the risks, What is it you're looking at? What could this mean um, for the environment and for us? Well, um, we are wondering if, um, if they can be transferred in the body. There are already some uh, studies that uh, demonstrate that, uh, that were published um, a few months ago. And there are also published studies that demonstrate that there is a, a food um, transfer of those nanoplastics. To our food? Uh, it's, uh, so the study with the food transfer was done with algae, uh, invertebrate, and two, pieces, two species of uh, fish. And they demonstrated that in those four uh, species, there is a transfer. Mm -hmm. So the fish eat the, what are the invertebrates? Yes, and that have been eating the algae that was made in presence of the nanoplastic. This experiment was conducted by Korean researchers and published in January. They subjected green algae to nano-sized polystyrene. They then let small water fleas feed on this algae, which were then again eaten by the fish. The researchers later detected the nanoplastic in the stomachs of the fish. The animals seemed to be affected negatively, as they were less active in the water. The researchers also showed that the nanoplastics can penetrate the embryo walls and were present in the yolk sac of juveniles that had just hatched. Another study by Karen Madsen and colleagues had previously shown that nanoplastics can pass the blood-brain barrier in fish. So it could move um, into the body, up the yes. food chain. What else? We are looking if there are some... Uh some con consequences uh, in the organisms. In the, we are doing those ecotoxicological uh, tests uh, with the colleagues in, uh, in Toulouse, in Ecolab, and uh, we are wondering if there might be some um, genotoxic uh, effects or mortality or 
uh, change in the behavior of the animals. We are looking at all those kinds of uh, things. So genotoxic, that would mean it would um, change the genes or what would that yes. mean? They are looking, yes, at the, the genes of the animals. They have a special uh, animals that uh, if there are some um, interaction with the DNA that uh, uh, make some small um, dots and they can do microscopy and see if there are some genotoxic uh, effects. Yes. Could this ever small a plastic at some point damage the genetic information of cells and maybe our own bodies? Nanoplastics and their effects are really a new frontier in plastics research. So let's hope the results come back negative. What makes plastics special um, compared to natural polymers? There are also natural polymers, right? Yes, so plastic is special compared to natural polymer is because it can long uh, it la it can last a long time. So it is not uh, biodegradable. So it can store the food or uh, liquids for a long time. So the the persistency of the plastic is really interesting compared to biopolymers. But um, I think the the solution to the problem is to prevent the plastic to be in the, in the environment. It's to collect the plastic, it's to recycle the plastic, it is to uh, stop with the landfills, and, and then there is no more problem. Thank you so much for the lab tour, Alexandra Tejal. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This was The Plastosphere with environmental chemist Alexandra Terhal from Toulouse. My name is Anja Krieger and the music was composed by Dorian Roy and Blue Dot Sessions. My thanks go to Deborah Blum and the Night Science Journalism Program for bringing me to Toulouse for a fact-checking panel at the Euroscience Open Forum. I also owe huge thanks to fellow producers Ines Blasius, Tim Howard and Luisa Beck for their feedback on the podcast. And to Riff reporter Joachim Budde for editing the German translation and asking the right tricky questions. Melanie Bergmann of the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research tweeted me valuable links to nanoplastic studies. Many thanks for that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please consider supporting the production on Patreon or via Riff Reporter. If you have any comments or questions, send me a message to mail at anjakrieger.com. My name is written with a J and a K, so it's A-N-J-A-K-R-I-E-G-E-R. -E you can also tweet me at PlastospherePod. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, refuse, reduce, repair and recycle. Thank you, bye-bye and tschüss.